Good morning, church. Happy Sunday. I hope your family had a safe Christmas and a well Christmas. For so many Americans, 2020 has been one of the most challenging years of their lifetime. With economic fallout, no job, no rent, more Americans have experienced food insecurity, and demand hasn't stopped, while COVID-19 setting deaths and hospitalization records. And as we prepare to usher in the new year, amid the struggle, we all have hope. Our dreams, aspirations, and longings, as well as our fears for ourselves, our families, and our society in the coming year. But what does the future look like and hold in store for you? There are certain things about the future that we don't know and that we are not supposed to know. However, there are other things that we know about the future, and that makes a big difference in our lives today. Today, I want us to look at God's plan, God's plan for your future. Now, you ought to be interested in this for three reasons. First, the rest of your life is in your future. None of your life is left in the past or even today. All your life is in the future. The two things I could say about that are, number one, you don't know what is going to happen or what's going to be. And number two, you simply can't control it. So I, shouldn't definitely, I should be definitely interested in what God has to say about my future because I don't know. None of us know what's going to happen tomorrow, much less the coming year. We certainly can't control it. One of the ways we try to control the future is worry. But worry is worthless. It doesn't work. Now, before we look at the plans of God has for your future from the book of Jeremiah, chapter 29, I want to give you some certain facts, a couple, and a couple of promises about your future. You already know this, but it gives us a foundation for what we're looking to uh, today, this morning. The first fact, God knows everything that will happen. God knows everything that's going to happen in your life already. And it's just not that he knows what's going to happen and will happen, but he knows everything about why it happened. How does he know? Fact, God is infinite in relation to time. We call this God's eternity. He is without beginning and end. Psalms chapter 90, verse 2. Unlike all other created things, God has no origin, origin, and no starting point. There never was when God was not. God has always been God, even before there was matter or universe or time as we understand it. Our God is Jehovah El Olam, the everlasting God. Genesis chapter 21, verse 33. Fact, God is infinite in relation to space. We can call God this immensity. That's what he is. He's not constrained by geographic location, uh, physicality. The God who made everything in heaven and earth does not live in temples made by human hands. Acts chapter 17, verse 24. Am I only a God nearby, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Can anyone hide in secret places so that I cannot see him? Declares the Lord, do I feel heaven and earth? Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 23 and 24. Even heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain God. 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 27. 
whereas omnipresence suggests that God fills every part of space with His being. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 23. And the attribute of His immensity stresses, stresses that God's being is not subject to any limitations. The former emphasizes God's imminence, while the latter emphasizes His transcendence. Now, there is nowhere where God is not, and no way God can be contained by imperfection, by time, or by space. God sees all events from creation to the last judgment in one glimpse. God is the, the eternal now. He is the I am, Exodus chapter 3, verse 14. He recognizes that time exists and that we live in it. To Him, past, present, and future are one eternal now. So there are two ways to view a parade. One who stands at his door by the street as it passes and sees first those in the lead, then others, and finally the last. But one who is at the top of a high tower sees the whole parade at one glance. That person sees that in procession, there's order and progress. Thus it is with God. God sees that the past and future as vividly as the present. Not only does God know everything that will occur until the end of history itself, Isaiah chapter 46, verse 9 and 10, but He also knows every thoughts, even before we speak them. Psalms chapter 134, verse 4. He knows our hearts from afar. He even saw us in the womb. Psalms chapter 139, verses 1 and 3. And again, Solomon expresses this truth Perfectly when he says, for you, you only know the hearts of all the children of mankind. 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 39. He has a plan for your life. Since God has a plan, I must choose to trust and obey God. You know, God knows everything that's going to happen to my life. But I have to choose that plan. I have to choose to trust God. I have to choose to obey God every single day of my life. God's given me a, a free choice. I'm going to go with God's plan or I'm going to go with my plan. I'm going to choose what God tells me to do or I'm going to do what I want to do. Go with what the Bible says or do what I think is the right thing or is the most convenient thing. Here's what the Bible says. God says this in Deuteronomy chapter 30 verse 19. God says, today, I'm giving you the choice. It's your choice. You want a blessed life or a cursed life? Well, do what I tell you to do, God says. You want a life that has all the kinds of problems? Well, just do your thing. I'm giving you the choice. But God says, choose life. And in my future, God will be with me every step of the way. He will be with me every step of the way. I don't know what it's going to be like, and I know I can't control it, but I do know this. God will be with me every step of the way. God says in Hebrews chapter 13, verses 5 and 6, here's verse 5. Keep your lives free from the love of money. In other words, don't be greedy and be content with what you have. There was a man from uh, Budapest. He goes to the rabbi and he complains. He goes, Rabbi, Rabbi, life is just unbearable. There are nine of us living in one room. What can I do, Rabbi? What can I do? The rabbi answers, listen, take your goat into the room with you. The man was hesitant, 
skeptical and unable to believe this, but the rabbi insisted, do as I say and come back in a week. A week later, the man comes back looking for much more distraught than before. Rabbi, rabbi, I cannot stand it, he tells the rabbi. The goat is filthy. He eats everything. He smells like the worst case of armpit. The rabbi tells him, go home. Go home and let the goat out and come back in one week. A radiant man returns to the rabbi a week later, explaining, rabbi, rabbi, life is just beautiful. We enjoy every moment of it now that there's no goat. Only the nine of us in one room. Contentment is more a matter of our perspective than of our circumstances, isn't it? Then it says in verse 6, because God has said, never will I leave you and never will I forsake you. By building up your life, by building up your life on God's promises, he will never desert or forsake you. There's this old English translation when you read this that really doesn't bring out the Greek which has this five emphasis, negative emphasis, that is. And the best English rendering that one can find, at least where I've seen, is this old hymn. It's called, How Firm a Foundation. And the words go like this. The soul that on Jesus has leaned for repose, I will not. I will not desert to his foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I will never, no, never, no, never forsake. God hammers home the assurance that there are no circumstances ever or every, anywhere in which he abandons his children. Even when his saints go through um, horrible persecution and, and torturous deaths, he is there with them. And he uses the trial to take them to be with him in heaven for all eternity. So the reality of that, this comforting truth, basically enables us to be content in all circumstances. You know what? Our money, uh, our health, uh, our loved ones uh, may all be taken, but God himself remains. Having God is all that we need for contentment. You know, we're living in uncertain times with tremendous change and turmoil in the world. I see that the level of fear and uncertainty is very real. And you, can, you know what? You can see it in people's faces. You can hear it in their voices. Uh, with uncertainty comes fear and confusion. And to help you lower your fear factor, God promises to guide me when I'm confused and fearful. One thing that you can predict about your future is that you're going to have a lot of decisions to make. You're going to have a lot of choices, and some of those choices Choices are difficult, and some of them are even confusing. There are big, life-changing decisions, and in, a lot of times, we get confused about them. We get confused because they're scary decisions, and they're scary decisions because we're afraid. Well, what if I'm wrong with this one choice, and you just get stuck in our confusion? Well, I can talk to my friends, but the problem there is, is they probably think just like you do. They're probably as confused fearful as you are. Or you can go on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and see what they have to say. But good luck there. Their opinions change like the wind. There's only one authority, 
who always is, is right and completely reliable, and that's your creator. If you want the answers, you have to ask the inventor. God knows the purpose that he created you for. Here's what the Bible says in Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5. It says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Let me ask you a question. Who do you really trust deep down in your heart? He says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Never rely on what you know or you think you know. Remember the Lord is in everything you do. He will show you the right way if you trust him with what? With all your heart. Question, why trust God? Think about it. He creates you. He loves you. Knows everything about you. He gave his son to die for you. If God did all those things and cares that much about you, why in the world do you think he would tell you to do something wrong? Why would he send you in a direction that was not the best plan for your life? He has a perspective about your life and your future that you desperately need to have. And the only way to get God's perspective is, guess where? His word, right? It's the Bible. If you want to know God's will and plan for you, you have to know God's word. Not only will God help me when I'm confused, God promises to help me when I am tempted. Now, in the future, you're going to have the same old temptations. Hate to tell you that. Hopefully, you're going to get better at resisting them. The weaknesses that you're, you have today, okay, you're probably going to have to struggle with them for the rest of your life. So let me give you the bad, the good, and the great news about temptation. The bad news is you're never going to outgrow temptation. Some people think, well, maybe I'll get to the point in my spiritual life, I'm just not going to be tempted anymore. Fat chance. It's going to happen the rest of your life, okay? The more mature I get, the more Satan tempts me because Satan doesn't bother me with anyone if you're not doing anything. But if you make a difference with your life, he's going to mess with you. When Satan gives you an idea and he puts it in your mind, we call that temptation. When God gives you an idea and he suggests that in your mind, we call that inspiration. Temptation, inspiration, and then you throw your own thoughts in the, in the barrel. The good news about temptation, it's not a sin to be tempted. It's a sin to give into temptation. The Bible says Jesus was tempted in every point as we were, but he never sinned. Temptation, now hear this, temptation is just a choice. Now, God is faithful. And because God is faithful, he promises two things. First, he will keep the temptation from becoming so strong that you can't stand up against it? That's the first promise. The second, and when you're tempted, he'll show you a way out. So you won't give into it. It's uh, comforting to know, it's really com comforting to know, comforting to know that, that God understands our struggles. Second Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 3 says this, the Lord is faithful. There's that phrase again. He keeps his promises. And he will give you the strength and will and to protect you from the evil one. Now, that being said, this is the main course. During the days of Jeremiah, God's people were deported to Babylon. 
they were exiled uh, living in a ghetto a thousand miles from home. The exiles had lost everything and what few possessions they could carry with them to Babylon. They, they lost their freedom and, and now they're captives. They've been taken from their homes and, and had lost uh, their means of making a living. Uh, they were separated from relatives uh, and friends, some of whom uh, may have uh, died in the long march from uh, Jerusalem to Babylon. Many had to watch in horror as friends and family were murdered. So no matter how they looked at it, the situation seems uh, hopeless. So they wanted to know where God was in all that. Why was he allowing them to suffer? Some prophets said this, other prophets said that, but nobody seemed to know for sure what God was up to. Why were bad things happening to God's people? Jeremiah 29, chapter 29 was written to answer that question. That is our text this morning. Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 10 through 23. Jeremiah 29, 10 through 23. So the chapter contains a letter from home written by Jeremiah, who was still living back in Jerusalem. Uh, the main point of the letter, le letter, that is, is that God knows what he is doing, even when it does not seem that way. One reason God's plans are best is because God knows all about them. For I know the plans I have for you, declare the Lord. That's verse 11a. God's plans are, number one, known plans. Paul Simon's song, Slip Sliding Away, has this to say about God's planning ability. Well, God only knows, and God makes his plan, and the information's un unavailable to mortal man. The last part of that lyric is not sound doctrine, okay? Some information is available to mortal man, including everything we need for life and, God and godliness, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. But the first part contains some good theology. God only knows, say that, God only knows, and God makes his plan, say God makes his plan. And that is Jeremiah's message. God makes and God knows God's plan. This fact is stressed by the grammar of Jeremiah chapter 28, verse 11, where the I is repeated in Hebrew uh, for emphasis. I, I know the plans I have for you. We do not know what the plans are, but God does. There are God's plans for us, not our plans for God, or even our plans for us. God's, in, God insists on his right to know and fulfill his plans, which is why the plans are so good. They are God's plans rather than ours. The God who knows the plans also, also carries them out. And the verse that followed Jeremiah proceeds to list all the things God will do. And this is what he will do. I will be found by you. I will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you. I will bring you back to the place. So God will do the finding, the gathering, and the bringing back. And since God made the plans and knows the plans, it makes sense for him to what? Fulfill the plans. When God says he knows the plans he has for you, 
it is very important to understand whom he means by the word you. Christians often apply Jeremiah's promise to themselves, individualistically. Terrific, they say. God knows the plans he has for me. This shows how self-centered Bible reading can be. Jeremiah's promise should not be taken individualistically. It is not a private promise. It is for the entire church. The you in I know the plans I have for you refers to the whole people of God. And before thinking about what the promises means for you, think about what it means for us. In Jeremiah's case, the promise of return was for the whole community of exiles. In the case of the church, the promise of salvation in Christ is for the whole community of believers. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ. In accordance with his pleasure and will, in him we have redemption through his blood and the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. In him we were also having been predestined according to the plan of of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. Ephesians chapter 1, 4 through 5, 7, 11. 1, 4 through 5, 7, 11. This passage shows how well known salvation in Christ has been from all eternity. God chose us, and he redeemed us according to plan. Actually, everything God does is according to plan, since he, what? Works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. But God especially knows every step of salvation. He knows it from beginning to the end, which is why it is sometimes called the plan of salvation. Ephesians chapter 1 also shows that the plan of salvation is for the, what, the whole church. Rather than writing about his own uh, personal predestination and redemption, the Apostle Paul continuously refers to we and us. Now, if God knows his plans for the church, then he also knows his plans for the Christian. Although we should not take Jeremiah's promise individualistically, we can apply it individually, all right? God does know his plans for each and every Christian. God's plans are known plans. And the second thing that Jeremiah 29 says about God's plans is that they are promising plans. They are promising plans. The exiles thought they had every reason to be pessimistic about their situation. They were being held captive, and they had uh, no way to escape. But God had plans to give them hope and a future, 11b. Here was the plan. Now listen. I will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back to the place for which I carried you into exile. 
14b. The exiles would not have to live in Babylon forever, okay? Theirs was a fixed term captivity. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my gracious promise to bring you back to this place. Verse 10, at the end of the 70 years, they would get to, what, celebrate the homecoming. Even though God's people uh, were going through the worst of times, uh, things were still promising because God knew the plans he had for them. If God's plans are for the future, the Christian must not complain about the present. One of the dangers of grumbling about what God is doing, that whatever it is, God probably probably is not finished doing it, okay? But it is it is very natural to do that. But, but by nature, a plan that is something that will not be completed, guess what? Until someone, sometime in the future that is. And once it is completed, it will not be a plan anymore. It will be history. So if God has plans for hope and a future, you must give him enough time to work them out. A Christian is someone who trusts the promises of God for the future and acts upon them in the present. In, the words, the, in other words, the Christian acts on God's promises before they are fulfilled. Faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Now, the refugees in Babylon had to live by faith. And during that 70 long years of their captivity, uh, they had to trust the promise, promises of God. They had to live uh, for God in the city by faith. They had to build houses, uh, plant gardens, raise families, and pray for the welfare of the city by faith. And that's found in verses 5 and 7 of Jeremiah chapter 29. Things look promising, but only as long as they trusted God to do what he had set them out to do. Not all the exiles lived by faith. Jeremiah told a sad story about, about these two men who did not. Uh, Ahab, son of uh, Koaliah, and Zedekiah, uh, son of Maaseah. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, all you exiles whom I have sent away from Jerusalem to Babylon. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says about Ahab, son of Koaliah, and Zedekiah, son of Maaseah who are prophesying lies in my name. I will hand them over to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and he will put them to death before your very eyes. Verses 20 and 21. So you see these false prophets named after two evil kings, they were impatient. They were unwilling to wait 70 years for God to do his work. They wanted him to work it out like right now. So they took matters into their own hands. They started a, uh, what did you call this? Oh, seeker-sensitive synagogue. Yeah, telling people what they, they most wanted to hear, that the exile was almost over. So they were also guilty of several outrageous sins, folly, fornication, and fraud. Verse 23 says this, For they have, been, for they have done outrageous things in Israel, they have committed adultery with their neighbor's wives in my name and have spoken what lies, which I did not tell them to do. I know it, and I'm a witness to it, to it, declares the Lord. He's telling this. 
Most likely, the reason Nebuchadnezzar had Ahab and Zedekiah put to death is that they tried to lead a rebellion against Babylon. They were, they were treated so disgracefully that they became swear words among the exiles. In verse 22, it says this, Because of them, all the exiles from Judah who are in Babylon will use this curse. The Lord treats you like Zedekiah and Ahab, whom the king of Babylon burned in the fire. Literally, excuse me, literally, the Bible says Nebuchadnezzar roasted them, which was the proper punishment for treason. Now, roasting them is not good. But the biggest sin Ahab and Zedekiah committed was not treason against Babylon, but treason against God. Speaking false things about God and committing adultery does not feel outrageous to us, but roasting someone in the fire does. So God correlates the two so we would learn what, what is really outrageous in the world, and that is demeaning God and breaking covenants. They were not willing to live by faith in God's promises. God's plans are known and promising plans. They were also Good plans. That's number three. Good plans. There's a hint of the goodness of these plans in verse 10, where God speaks of fulfilling his gracious promise. Grace is the unmerited favor of God. To receive something by grace is to receive something one does not deserve. What God's people deserve in this case was to stay in captivity as long as God was pleased to keep them there. But God promised to give them something they did not deserve. By his grace, by his grace, he would bring them back home. The Christian cannot think about gracious promises without thinking about the grace that comes through the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible teaches that all of us are guilty sinners who deserve to be damned for our sins. God has every right to give us the death penalty. Yet because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4 through 5b. Now, that is a good plan. It is God's plan for saving sinners. We do not deserve to be rescued from sin or delivered from death, but by his grace, God sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for our sins. Salvation, salvation is God's abundant provision of grace. Though the one man, through the one man, that is, Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 5, verse 17. Now, God's plans are not only gracious for the future, they are also gracious for the present. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not harm you. Verse 11. God's grace is available right now. 
the exiles in Babylon did not have to wait 70 years for God to do them any good. His plans included their present prosperity. The word prosper is the same word Jeremiah used when he said, seek the peace and prosperity of the city. Because if it prospers, uh, prospers that is, you too will prosper. It is the Hebrew word shalom, meaning order, stability, health, and safety. Shalom is all-encompassing peace. So God promised that he would begin to give his people that kind of peace right away. He not only wanted them to work for shalom, he wanted it, it to give it to them right there and then. So this good plan stands in contrast to God's plan for the people who stayed back in Jerusalem. His plans for them, they weren't good. Uh, uh, for they were judged for their um, holier-than-thou attitude towards the exiles. Verse 15 and seven, uh, through 19 says this, You may say the Lord has raised up prophets for us in Babylon, naming the lion prophets who said, the exile was almost over back in verse 8 and 9. But this is what the Lord says about the king who sits on David's throne and all the people who remain in the city, your countrymen who did not go with you into exile. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Check this out. I will send the sword, famine, and plague against them, and I will make them like poor figs that are so bad they cannot be eaten. I will pursue them with the sword, famine, and plague, and will, take, and will make them abhorred to all the kingdoms of the earth and an object of cursing and horror, of scourge and reproach among all the nations where I drive them. For they have not listened to my words, declares the Lord, words that I sent to them again and again by my servants, the prophets. And then it says, and you exiles have not listened either, declares the Lord, verses 15 through 19. So this goes back to what Jeremiah prophesied about the good figs and the bad figs in chapter 24. The people who stayed in Jerusalem were like the bad figs to be thrown away. But the exiles in Babylon were the good figs and God's plan for them were good. So God's plans for his children are only good, even if God sends suffering their way, and it will be for their good. Christians who live in fear uh, or, or worry uh, need to just grab hold, grab hold of the goodness of God. God's plans are known, promising, good, and number four, personal plans personal plans. The last thing Jeremiah teaches about God's plan is that they are personal. God's purpose in all his plans is to bring his people into an intimate relationship with themselves. Verse 12 and through 14a. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me, when you seek me with all your heart, I will be found by you, declares the Lord. You see, God's plans are not just for you. 
they are for you in relation to him. This relationship was to begin right away. In this respect, the word then at the beginning of verse 12 is somewhat uh, misleading. It makes it sound as if God's people will not find him until the end of their exile. What the Bible actually says is this, and you will call upon me. The exiles in Babylon did not have to wait 70 years to have a relationship with God. He invited them into a personal personal relationship right away in Babylon in their suffering. So the lesson, church, is easy applied here. We do not need to wait to call upon God. He is available for us right now. And whenever we call, he will listen. Whenever we pray, he will answer. Whoever seeks will find. Now, seeking God sometimes seems like, a, like playing a spiritual hide-and-seek. God's ways are, are so mysterious that we sometimes uh, despair of, of ever finding Him. But if we do play hide-and-seek with God, it's the kind of hide-and-seek one plays with a toddler. You see, toddlers get scared if they have to look very long. For a toddler, the joy of hide-and-seek is not the hiding or the seeking, but it's the finding. God knows how scary it is to be alone in the world without him. So here it is, church. So his good plans are personal plans. They draw his children into the heart of a relation with him. Amen. And finally, in Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 13, says this. This is what God says. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Anyone who seeks God sincerely and wholeheartedly would find him. What the seeker is really looking for, even if she or he does not yet realize it, is Jesus Christ. Jesus is the way to God, the Savior of the world, and the answer to all of life's questions. Jesus repeats the same wonderful promise first made in Jeremiah chapter 29. He says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, the door will be opened. Father God, we acknowledge that your plans for us are known plans, not our plans for us, for you, that is, or even our plans for us. We know that your plans are promising plans. Help us to trust you in our future as you act upon them in the present. We thank you for your good plans for us that are not only gracious for our future, 
they're also gracious for the present. And your personal plans, Lord, which are not just for us, but they are for us in relation to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Romans chapter 3, verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every person is born alienated from God. To be saved, you must acknowledge that as a sinner, you deserve God's judgment. And you must trust in Christ's blood as God's payment for your sins. You can choose a life outside of Christ, which is futile and headed for eternal destruction, or choose eternal life with Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. That you repent of your sins, accept his forgiveness, and if you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised them from the dead, you will be saved. If that's you, and you have never asked Jesus to come into your life, to be your Lord, and want to be saved today, here's your opportunity. Pray this prayer with me. Lord Jesus, for too long, I've kept you out of my life. I know that I am a sinner, and I cannot save myself. No longer will I choose Close the door when I hear you knocking. By faith, I gratefully receive your gift of salvation. I'm ready to trust you as my Lord and Savior. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for coming to earth. I believe you're the Son of God who died on the cross for my sins and rose from the dead on the third day. Thank you for bearing my sins and giving me the gift of eternal life. I believe your words are true. Come into my heart, Lord Jesus, and be my Savior. Amen. Now, if you said that prayer to ask Christ to come into your life and follow him, we'd love to hear from you. So you can email us at contact at cryout.org. Contact at cryout.org. God bless you. I love you. Have a wonderful Sunday.